Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This is our 100th episode, and this podcast has been around for a little over three years now. I find that kind of hard to believe. Um, There's been some consistency with episodes. There's been some breaks from episodes. And right now, the plan is to bring you weekly episodes as as much as we possibly can. Um, Sometimes things come up, though, with life, with our guests' lives, um, with our podcast manager's life. So uh, bear with us. You know, this is imperfect motherhood over here, and we are here to support you in that journey as well. So I just wanted to bring your attention to a few things. If you're a new listener to the podcast, any of the old episodes based on a particular topic or area of interest are absolutely worth listening to. They are not outdated. This is not that old of a podcast. (laughs) So we have lots of great episodes on things like tongue ties, obviously just anything related to breastfeeding, um, postpartum, you know, motherhood, all of those sorts of things. We've got many more awesome episodes coming your way. And if you ever have any suggestions for things um, that you'd like to hear on the show, a particular guest or topic, we'd love to hear from you. One of the best ways to get in touch with us would be to send us a DM over on Instagram at Holistic Lactation, but you can also send us an email to podcast at holisticlactation.com. If you yourself are interested in being a guest on the episode, we would absolutely love for you to apply. Um, Just head over to the show notes and we have a link to the application right there for you. Whether you're a mom wanting to share your journey to inspire others or show your sisterhood along with someone else who's probably been there and listening to the show, or you're an expert in something related to perinatal health or breastfeeding and lactation, We'd love to hear from you as well. Um, What we are not looking for are sponsors of the show because this show is actually sponsored and put on by Holistic Lactation. So if you did not know that, uh, we are a company that offers several things. One is our virtual telehealth appointments that we do with our clients all over the world. So we have a team of lactation consultants that are actually based in different countries so we can accommodate many different time zones. As long as you have a good internet connection and you speak English or Spanish, we can accommodate you and serve you. Uh, We also have a program called the Nurture Collective, which is our course and community designed for breastfeeding moms. So within that program, we actually have what I would call mini courses, if you will, that cover everything from how to prepare for breastfeeding from pregnancy through how to wean your baby when you are done with breastfeeding. But more than that information, we have an interactive community that's led by myself, um, experts on our team that are IBCLCs or breastfeeding specialists. And we've also got some seasoned members 
members who have been with us from the very beginning. Um, they've been members for a year now, and um, they are there in there providing peer support and expertise and just emotional support and encouragement along the way. So we love having those discussions. We actually do live calls with our group there. Um, we respond you know, in the forum to questions and messages that we get. Um, we surprise you with things. We've got exclusive discounts for our members, and it's just a really, really wonderful, unique place that is not the hot mess of a Facebook moms group, that is not just a course where you cannot get deeper information or ask questions. And it's a little bit like the podcast in the sense that we have guest experts come in, but unlike the podcast, they are sharing presentations with us. They are teaching us actionable things. Um, they are making themselves available to you to answer your questions directly. You can hop on with them live. You can ask your questions in advance if you can't make it live. And those recordings are actually really courses unto themselves. So we've got different experts that come in on a monthly basis that go much deeper than they do here, even on the podcast. So if you're interested in that, check it out at thenurturecollective.co. Um, realistically, it costs you less than a dollar a day if you want to sign up for the monthly membership. You also have the option to buy the lifetime membership, which is access to the course for all time. You don't have to pay on a regular basis as well. So check that out. And the final thing that we offer are dietary supplements for lactation. Right now, we've got two products, our advanced lactation formula and the lactation flow formula. These are designed to support breast milk production, your milk supply, breast health during lactation, preventing things like clogged ducts or engorgement, and working with pain related to those sorts of things. These supplements are something that I personally developed based on my years of expertise of recommending individual supplements. Um, thoroughly going through the research on all of the options available and treating patients in my own clinical practice. Um, of course, I've always worked collaboratively with my colleagues on treatment of patients. And so from that really came out with these unique products that are special blends that are really not found anywhere else on the market. So those are available on our website, holisticlactation.com, uh, or you can actually find them over on Amazon and soon and select CVS stores. So we would love to hear from you if there's anything else that you'd like to hear about on this podcast. And we'd love for you to join us over on our Instagram or our TikTok at Holistic Lactation. Um, we're also going to be posting more on our YouTube channel, which has been around for quite a while, but does not have many videos and certainly not recent ones. Also at Holistic Lactation. And then if you're so inclined and you would benefit from an appointment, you can book one of those on our website. You can join the Nurture Collective. Um, or check out our supplements if you think those are right for you. So thank you so much for being a listener. If you haven't subscribed to the show, please go ahead and do that. And as part of our celebrating our 100th episode, we would love to see more reviews on the podcast. So you can leave those on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Breastfeeding Talk podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinser, and today I am joined by Dr. Tara Sullivan. She is a pelvic health specialist, and I actually connected with Tara through a mutual friend. Um, just so happens that we got together one summer day, and our kids have played together, and of course, we had a chat about what we do, and when she told me that she uh, is a pelvic health specialist, she's a PT, uh, when I wanted to have someone come on the show to talk about this, because I think it's a really important topic for anybody who is 
going to bear children is burying them or has born them. Uh, so Tara came to mind. I'm so glad she agreed to come on the show. And yeah, I'd love to just welcome her to the podcast. It's so fun to have somebody else who's like local to the Phoenix area. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Tara, what you do, your training and all of that. All right. Well, thank you. I am excited to be here. This is my first podcast, so this is fun. Um, yeah, I so I have my doctorate in physical therapy. And then after that training, 10 years ago, when I graduated from school, I went into pelvic floor training, which is a specialty. And so we call it pelvic health therapy now. And we basically treat bowel, bladder and sexual dysfunctions in men, women and children. Um, and then I just went on with my training to get board certified as a women's health specialist. And I did a fellowship in sexual medicine and just teaching other PTs. This specialty is another thing that I do on the side in addition to treating my patients. And just I love this field and helping women, especially. Um, I do treat men too, but just helping women realize what's normal, what's not normal, and what we can treat and how to get better. Oh, that's amazing. Well, you're doing all of the things, clearly. I love it. Um, and, you know, you're just such an expert with all of the training you have had and continue to get. So, I think that is just such, you know, such a wonderful asset to healthcare, right? Um, like you said, it's kind of becoming its own special field. So, um, you know, when it comes to women specifically um, and the pelvic floor and pelvic health, like tell us a little bit more about what that is, because, you know, I think it's like a buzzword that people have started to hear about, um, but it's not necessarily a conversation that they're yet having with their doctors um, and, you know, even in their childbirth classes. Right. So um, just some basic education for our listeners would be great. Yeah. So mainly what we treat is incontinence, which I think is the most known diagnosis out there that people relate to pelvic floor. Um, but there's a lot more. We treat anything to do with the bladder, whether it's in complete emptying or burning during urination or any bowel related issues such as constipation. And we treat different sexual dysfunctions um, like pain with intercourse. Um, and of course, we treat pelvic pain as well. And we see a lot of these complications in women who had babies, whether it was a vaginal birth, C-section, doesn't matter. They all come with their own complications, unfortunately. And there's just a lot of misconceptions out there that, you know, oh, well, I had a baby, so I'm always going to leak when I'm on the trampoline, or I'm always going to leak when I sneeze, or sex is never going to be the same again, um, or, you know, whatever the misconception is, I think our field is trying to educate the world and other healthcare providers and, and women out there that they don't have to live with what they think is normal. Mm, yeah, I I love that because I wonder if some of these problems were maybe in existence before pregnancy, but then that exacerbated issues. Like, would you say that's the case? Absolutely. A lot of these times we see childhood um, experiences, and I don't mean trauma. It doesn't have to be that at all, but just 
habits that your parents gave you about going to the bathroom. And, you know, that leads to some bladder dysfunction. And then you get pregnant and you have a baby sitting on your bladder. And by the time it comes out, we always like to joke that the, you know, the baby likes to grab something on the way out. Things aren't sitting where they're supposed to. And um, that usually ends up being the the final straw. And so issues that you've had, you may have been able to accommodate before the pregnancy or before the birth now have become something that you, you can't do or tolerate anymore. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think what you said about, you know, jumping on the trampoline or sneezing and, you know, crossing the legs or, you know, all of that. Um, it's a joke every time I take my kids to the trampoline park with fellow moms and, you know, it just, I know, right. That, you know, because I've, I've, you know, met people like you and I've, I've learned, you know, that that's not normal, but it's sometimes difficult to have that conversation because it's so common that it's just this belief that's like embedded where it's not really recognized as a problem. Um, so, you know, if somebody, you know, does have those issues, like you said, um, you know, is what is their first stop, I guess, if they're suspecting something's wrong? Like, do they talk to their OB, their primary care provider? Um, do they just, you know, straight go and look for someone like yourself? Because I think, knowing that there's an issue and, but then knowing how to get help can be like two very different things for a lot of people. Right. And we're definitely trying to close that gap. Uh, So we always say anybody who's been pregnant or given birth of any either way that they should always see a pelvic floor therapist. Um, We are the ones that are going to really assess the muscles and see how the muscles are now functioning uh, postpartum. Uh, we'll talk to you about hormones. We'll talk to you about what's normal, what's not normal. So we're trying to get this movement going, at least here in Phoenix, where the hospitals send an automatic referral after you have a baby and you deliver in the hospital, they're sending a um, referral to our call center. And then the call center calls and says, Hey, you had a baby, let's schedule your eight week follow up with a physical therapist. And so we hope that the word gets out there that as soon as six to eight weeks after you have the baby, you can come see a physical therapist um, who specializes in pelvic floor will get you back to the exercises that you were doing either during pregnancy or even pre-pregnancy. Uh, we'll assess again, like the muscles to see if they, um, are activating when they should. And maybe that's why you're leaking urine. We can resolve that. Uh, We like to say that it's common, but not normal to leak urine after having a baby. And, uh, and then we'll look at the tissue. We'll talk about hormones. We'll talk about what to expect. Um, Another misconception is that sex has to hurt or will hurt or won't feel as good. And so we assess, again, the tissue and muscles that go into that and see how we can help there as well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The heart behind the I'm on podcast is storytelling because every mom has a story to tell. I know that when I talk to my friends who are parenting and we share stories, we all end up feeling less alone and more capable of loving our kids well. You can find information everywhere on the internet. Some is bad parenting advice and some is pretty wise. 
We like to think there's a lot of wisdom on imom.com. And when you combine that signature wisdom with a great story, it brings parenting to life. We want a mom who's listening to see herself and her kids in these stories and rest in the confidence that she is the perfect mom for her kids. Check out the iMom podcast with new episodes every Monday. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, man, we got to talk more about this whole tying into hospitals thing because okay, <laughs> if they could just refer these breastfeeding moms to an outpatient uh, IBCLC after discharge, that would be amazing. Yeah, because you know they're just yeah. you know those well checks aren't super often and yeah, all of that. But oh, I love that. That's so great. Um. And what you said too about just just the muscles and things, um, you know, maybe you could give us like a little anatomy lesson. I know this is audio, but um, like what what are all of the parts? You know, there's the pelvis, the bones, but there's all these muscles and soft tissue. So, what are all of those pieces that work together? You know, what are the muscles that you know are you know having some dysfunction? Because I think that is something that, you know, we're just sometimes not even really aware of all of our own anatomy and what's going on internally. Right. So, um, I know for me too, I'm, I'm learning, but I'm still not an expert and I'd love to learn more. Yeah. So the pelvic floor muscles are basically the bottom of the pelvis. So we think of like the pelvic girdle as the pelvis and all the muscles that attach to it and the bones. And then we have the pelvic floor, which basically run from the pubic bone to the coccyx bone. So you can imagine like a bowl or a sling at the bottom of the pelvis. And those muscles are responsible from keeping you from you know, urinating when you don't want to, or fecal incontinence, or they have a huge role in intercourse. Um, And so they they attach from pubic bone to the tailbone, and then they also surround the vaginal opening, they surround the urethra, and they surround the anus. And so again, they, they're in charge of opening and closing uh, the openings there. And then that leads to us why we do intravaginal exams, because that's how we assess the muscles and to see if their tone and their strength is normal um, and what we need to do to fix it. So we do all intravaginal work. Mm, Yeah, Uh, that's it's so fascinating. Um, I was telling Tara before we started recording, I just um, had spine surgery um, a little over a month ago, and um, I've never had a catheter. I've never had a major surgery. So good times. Yeah. Uh, I had urinary retention after my surgery. It turns out it was due to a particular medication that I'm so grateful that that hospital doctor figured out because they were going to send me home with a catheter for two weeks until I could see a urologist. That would have been worse than my surgery. Like I can't even imagine, but, um, I just remember like worrying in the hospital, like, oh my gosh, did something happen to the nerves or my pelvic floor? Like what is going on? Why can I not pee? I'm trying so hard and it will not come. And, um, you know, I guess there's just this medication causing that effect. Um, but it was, you know, it was like really, really scary. Right. And then things kind of felt different down there for a little while. Um, Turns out that a catheter can lead to some scar tissue in the urethra and limit the opening. Um, it's all resolved now, 
But, you know, all these things that I like started Googling and going, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like different connected pieces here. And mm-hmm. I didn't think that was something I needed to worry about. And, you know, just trying to educate myself, right? And, okay, who would I see if there is an issue, which would be someone like you? Because, yeah, um, yeah it's a, it's scary when that stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, glad that you didn't end up having to see us. <laughs> Me too. It was a huge relief. I was like, I seriously will just, I don't know, cry until the end of time. If I have to go home with a catheter, that just sounds awful. But yeah. I mean, I'm sure people do it, you know, it's... you would have survived. I would have been there for you. <laughs> I would have helped you. <laughs> I was like, the doctor was like, oh, well, we have this little strap. You can um, attach the bag to your ankle so you can walk around. And I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> It'll you can hide it under your pants. Uh dude, no. No. Not not, not my Lulus. <laughs> right. Oh, like no thanks. Um but yeah, it's just it's it's crazy like how it's all so connected like you said, yeah. you know, just um from, you know, leaking urine to retaining it or you know all of these different things and you know, I think some some women, you know, trauma or no trauma, right? Might might go, hmm an intravaginal exam that I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. So, uh, I mean, you know, these pap smears are no picnic, so that speculum cranking everything open is not fun. I imagine that yours are not so, um, ours are mechanical. Yes. (laughs) We don't use stirrups. We don't use a speculum. You're comfortable, you're bolstered pillows, and we use just the glove digit lube and we try our hardest to not hurt you. Uh, We're really just trying to get an idea of what we need to do to get those muscles back to normal. I mean, it makes sense that they just had a major trauma, C-section or vaginal. That is trauma on the pelvic floor. It's, you know, trauma to a lot of the tissue there, plus all the hormone fluctuations, um, which can lead to the incontinence as well as painful sex. And so um, we try to make it as conversational and less clinical as possible. It's definitely not like going to the GYN where you're just laid open and (laughs) we drink (laughs) you and most, I I think all of my patients have always said like, okay, that was better than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. That's good, right? I'm like, if you can do a pap smear, you can totally do that. Um, oh gosh, yeah, different <laughs> level, different level. Oh yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, you know, you had said something about hormones, and you know, there's obviously so many when we're talking about this stage of, of motherhood and life. Um, what are the different hormones that come into play, and how do those affect things in the pelvic area? Yeah, so the most important and the most common problem that we see uh, postpartum is that the vestibule, which is the tissue that surrounds the vaginal opening, is often very depleted of estrogen or estradiol. Um, and that is a lot of reasons, even before getting pregnant, it could be a history of being on oral contraceptive pills that affects it. And then getting pregnant, you have the pregnancy hormones that affect it. And then postpartum, your hormones are a whole nother level. So that affects it. And then as you know, breastfeeding is a 
big trigger for affecting that tissue. And that tissue is so important because the muscles connect into that tissue. And if that tissue is painful, then sex will be painful. And sometimes it's not actually the muscles, it's the tissue. And we recommend a little bit of estradiol cream to put on that tissue. And that is fine to use while you're breastfeeding because it's not systemic. So it's not like taking estrogen or testosterone or taking something where we're trying to raise your hormone levels. Um, We're doing just a little bit of estradiol cream. It's 0.01%. And a lot of, um, I mean, almost all of our patients who have any pain with sex after having, um, after giving birth, that is usually the number one reason. And that estradiol cream is like a magic cream and breastfeed. it doesn't affect their milk supply. Um, And so that, again, another thing where it's like, oh, I have to live with sex, not feeling good, you know, so not true. We can help you there. (laughs) Yes. No, I, I think that's really important to know because, you know, depending on the person, they may value their sex life more than someone else. And Mm -hmm. so for those that, you know, really, um, you know, prioritize it, they can be really frustrated with that dryness and think, oh, well, you know, it's breastfeeding. So maybe I should give up breastfeeding because it's making things uncomfortable. Um, Or sometimes moms will know about the cream that you're describing and they'll worry about it impacting their milk supply. But, you know, I try to remind moms that like, you know, by the time you're even getting prescribed something like that, your milk supply is well-established. You've moved out of that hormonal phase of driving milk production anyhow. There's still hormones involved, but um, it is topical. We're not asking you to, you know, take a certain form of, you know, a birth control pill or something like that. It's it's something yeah. you're just putting exactly where it needs to go. So hopefully exactly. that assuages any big fears, but, you know, it's always something to talk to your doctor about because, um, you know, it's not right for everybody, but it's such an easy, easy fix for anybody who's really struggling with that, right? Yes. And we, we take the time. The great thing about being a physical therapist instead of an MD is we have 45 minutes to an hour with every patient. So we have the time to sit down and talk to them about their fears and about their concerns. And we can show them exactly where it goes and why and how often. And, you know, it's, it's just something that unfortunately MDs have five, 10 minutes with a patient and they say, here's the cream, use it. It's getting used wrong. You know, like we, we have that time to say, no, this is what that prescription means and what it does. And we can help them with that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a big difference for sure. When you get to spend that time with, with somebody, um, you know, regarding, uh, like you said, you know, mentioned exercises and things, Mm -hmm. um, there's been, you know, this knowledge of Kegels and then this sort of like anti-Kegel, don't do those, those are terrible. What's <laughs> yes. like, what is the truth? Because there's just, you know, social media, little yeah, quick snippets, that's, right? That's a great question. And the truth is in the middle because it depends on the patient. And that's why we exist because we establish, we assess the muscles and then we can establish whether or not you need to do kegels or not. Not everybody is a good candidate for kegels. Um, so for example, if you don't have pain, any type of pelvic pain or pain with sex, um, if you're having some laxity, some weakness, 
um, maybe even a prolapse of some sort, we would most likely assess your muscles and say, yes, you're a good candidate for Kegels. There are certain positions we would have them do depending on what their issue is. Um, let's say somebody came to me though, and they had really painful intercourse or daily pelvic pain, um, and their muscles were what we call overactive, or they have increased tone to them, which isn't equal to strength. So some people are like, well, I want tone, right? Like you go to the gym, you're trying, you want tone. No, when it comes to the pelvic floor, we want normal tone, but we don't want increased tone because that causes a lot of problems. That can actually be a reason why someone is leaking. It doesn't always have to be weakness. Um, but usually the general rule is if it's a pain patient, then um, we don't often start them with kegels um, because we're trying to downtrain first. We're trying to get rid of the tone, normalize it. So they have normal tone and then we can progress to the strengthening part. So Hmm. it, the studies show that most people also don't do kegels correctly. So that's a whole nother side of it where it's like, even if you need kegels, you don't know that you're doing them correctly. And so that that's, again, another thing that we can assess and say, yeah, you're doing it right. You're not doing it right. This is how you do it. This is the position. Uh, so it, yeah, they're important, but they're not our first line of treatment. And it, it really is a very small fraction of what we do. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's really good to know. And it makes sense, right. That it might be appropriate for some people and not others. Yeah. Um, you know, and it made me think about too, like you were saying, you could have, you know, kind of this high tone or low tone. Are there things outside of, you know, the pregnancy and birth experience, just like daily habits that could play a role as well? Like, I don't know, I was just thinking maybe the way that somebody sits or walks, um, you know, I feel like, um, you know, like you said, some people might have sort of had like some issues beforehand and now they've become a parent. So just curious about that as well. Yeah, certainly um, the way they sit, especially when they're breastfeeding, as you know, they can develop a lot of asymmetries and muscle imbalances there. Um, A lot of what we go through, though, are more of like day-to-day bowel and bladder habits, which most people don't make the connection, but the way we drink water and how much water we drink and what we're eating actually affects the pelvic floor a lot. And because of that synergistic role between the pelvic floor muscles and the bowel and bladder, we're always trying to um, uh, work on their habits. Like for example, if somebody's drinking a gallon of water a day, probably not indicated And so we'll talk to them about proper hydration and not overloading the bladder, not overloading the pelvic floor. Um, And so that's a lot of what we do besides evaluating their posture and their mechanics as far as like sitting. We're going to focus on their bowel and bladder habits and what they do, just eating and drinking and bladder irritants, things like, like that. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. You know, um, and even just like, you know, let's talk about toilet stuff. <laughs> All right. I love talking about toilet stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, like potty, I potty. Mean, that's what everyone wants to talk about. That was on oh, stretching, yeah. right. Yeah. So we do, we recommend that you have a stool underneath your feet. 
Um, the main reason for that is because basically the poop has to go around a corner before it comes out. And if you put your feet up on a stool and you have hip flexion a little, a little bit greater than 90 degrees, then that straightens that corner out so the poop can come right out. So that makes bowel movements a lot easier, prevents constipation. Um, and then habits, as far as bladder goes, we recommend generally speaking about four to six ounces of water per hour, but every hour, um, discontinuing drinking water before bed, um, not peeing just because the toilet's there or you're, you know, you, you want to go out shopping. So you pee before you leave, you know, things like that. We don't recommend all of that will affect the pelvic floor and bowel and bladder function. Mm, yeah. What about peeing standing up? I saw um, oh, bueno. something about don't do that. It's bad for your pelvic floor. Yeah. Don't pee standing up or hovering. Now, of course, you know, we're camping, but we're going to hover if, you know, yeah. I don't know for what. Hovering we- over the public toilets is like a big thing. Yeah. So I would say if that happens once or twice a year, you're not going to hurt yourself. But if you're peeing in public often because of your job or you're out and about, and so three, four, five times a day, you're hovering over the toilet, that's going to lead to a dysfunction um, because we truly need our pelvic floor muscles to be relaxed. Um, The only time that they are fully relaxed is when we are pooping and peeing. And so if we don't sit on the toilet, they don't get a chance to fully relax. Oh, wow. So no peeing in the shower either. (laughs) So so beyond the reason of standing in the shower, the reason why we don't recommend that is because the bladder is the most trainable organ in the body. And it actually will start to associate running water with peeing. And so the same thing about like, don't turn the faucet on while you're peeing, it will, um, your bladder will start to be like, well, there's water. That means I'm peeing. So now when you go to wash the dishes, they hear the water running. They're like, your bladder is like, let's pee. So you leak or get that urge and then you have to run to the bathroom. So we try not to create those associations. That makes sense. So when I could not urinate in the hospital, the nurse was like, I'll turn on the faucet for you. Sometimes the running water gets you going. And then I was like, you know, do you guys have like one of those Perry bottles that I can like, you know, spray, like see if that'll, and none of that worked. Now it probably wasn't going to work for me anyway, but like, I don't really have that association. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah, we wasted a lot of water. (laughs) Right. And so that goes back to what I was saying, like as a childhood too, like those are habits that like us as parents, we do not knowing any different and like, you know, our kids on the toilet, we tell them to go, go before we leave the house. I mean, we're just naturally doing this because of our own sanity, but, and that's fine. As they get older, we want to establish habits that once they're in control of their own body and their timing, that is less to less training of the bad habits and more training of the good. Oh, yeah. That, that kind of makes me think about, you know, I, I know so many people that listen to the podcast, you know, have, you know, older children, right. Um, or they're thinking ahead um, and, you know, toddlerhood and potty training, Um, There's all these, you know, sort of methods that people are sold on and ideas of, you know, three days or, you know, no underwear or put them on the potty every 30 minutes. Like, I mean, 
Yeah. Like you said, there's, you know, a lifetime of habits and you can sort of shift those later. But is there like something that you would say is like, you know, you really would like to see parents avoiding when they are potty training or, um, you know, any sort of like good habits that they could try to establish with their child? Because, you know, I don't know if it's like an awareness issue of, you know, they've gotten so used to having a wet diaper and it doesn't phase them anymore. So like, I think there's so many questions that parents have and they just really, you know, it's a lot of trial and error for us. Basically, we just do not know. It definitely is trial and error. Unfortunately, I don't have advice on potty training because I don't treat that young of a population. So I don't want to pretend to say like (laughs) right method, wrong method. I, I am sure there are better methods out there than some that I've heard, but I don't really really want to speak to that because that's not my realm of expertise. But I will say I can tell you what's normal for older age kids, like from once they're potty trained um, and younger than the age of 12, they really should be going to the bathroom about every hour and a half to two hours. Um, And then once they're about 12, going to the bathroom every three hours, like an adult should is more normal. Um, I was just seeing an eight-year-old girl the other day and she has pain when she's peeing. And a lot of it just has to do with not drinking enough water, but then also holding her urine all day when she's at school. So then that urine's building up. She's pretty dehydrated because she doesn't drink enough water. And then it comes out really acidic and it burns that tissue when it comes out. So she'll get that stinging feeling. So Really, it's just what I do with kids, which is I don't treat kids on a regular basis, but is more general bound bladder education of like what we like to see, what's normal. Mm, yeah. And and I guess on the flip side of that, like for those those children around those ages, um, bedwetting, you know, um, I think, you know, most parents are pretty aware of, you know, limiting fluids before bedtime, but it might still be an issue. And I'm curious what you normally see is going on when that happens. Yeah. So we do consider anything above the age of five to be something that we should be trying to correct. I mean, anything before five could still be their body figuring it out. If it persists past five and it's not getting better, I would definitely see a pelvic floor therapist for that. It really does come down to habits during the day. We'll do what we call bladder retraining with the kids. Um, And then the interesting thing is that milk happens to be the number one trigger for bedwetting. And so the first thing that we'll say is to try to cut off any milk or dairy products, mainly milk um, in the evening. Or sometimes people just, they need to eliminate it altogether if they have a sensitivity to it. But milk does change the osmotic pressure of the bladder. And so we see that being the number one trigger for bedwetting in older kids. Um, But it does, it has to do with, are they peeing enough during the day? Are they hydrated? Are they stopping their fluids? And then are they drinking a lot of milk? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's so fascinating. I never knew that about milk. So that's good to know. Um, and then kind of like fast forwarding to to the other side of the coin, so many women these days are having babies at older ages, mm-hmm. you know, just society has shifted, people are more involved in their careers, or, you know, they just feel like I'm going to be, you know, more responsible or better off financially or what have you, right? So many reasons. Um, maybe there's fertility struggles, right? So like so many clients that we have, you know, that are over 35, 
Um, and then, you know, they have babies and pretty soon they're hitting perimenopause. So there's big changes in hormones there. Um, and I'm assuming we probably see some pelvic stuff changing too. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I feel like perimenopause is kind of this thing that like some OBs address with people, but they're usually like, come back and see me when you're actually in menopause. Um, and there's just like a lot of, a lot of lack of information out there. There is. And we're, we're starting to see more research supporting, um, using hormones perimenopause because we want to prevent the, the, truck hitting you all of a sudden, you know, you're living life. Okay. And then all of a sudden you're in in menopause and things just go haywire. We can prevent that because there are a lot of little signs along the ways where we can say, Oh, you're probably low on estrogen. Maybe that's progesterone. Maybe that's testosterone. And we can get those levels normalized and balanced before you hit menopause. And then when you go through menopause, it doesn't have to be so horrible. It doesn't have to be hot flashes and painful sex and, you know, all the things that come with menopause. So I'm actually a big um, supporter of for if it's indicated for the right, the person to get on the right hormones, perimenopause and not waiting until menopause. Mm, and that makes that, sense. pelvic floor responds to that, just like I was saying about the vestibule and the estradiol, um, keeping that going and keeping our hormones healthy for a longer, you know, period of time is going to prevent a lot of the issues that we see postmenopausal. Mm, yeah, no, I, I, I've seen more and more, um, you know, sort of progressive OBs talking about that. And even the estrogen cream, like you were mentioning, um, that that is something that we should just make available to people that are going through perimenopause. Like why should you suffer and your sex life be miserable? Like, so there's kind of all these misconceptions. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember what year it is, but I was, I was actually just reading something that said, you know, the average age of menopause has always been around 50 years old, somewhere in there, 50 to 52, but there used to be a life expectancy of like 60. So, you know, you're suffering for maybe 10 years. Doesn't seem like as big of a deal. Maybe back then it didn't, I don't know. Or if you don't start menopause till you're 52 and you don't even live past 60. Now we're living till 80, 85, and that's 30 years of living with these vasomotor symptoms and discomfort that it's like, no, we should be preventing this. We know more now than we did then, and we have a lot longer life expectancy. And nobody should have to suffer for any amount of years, whether it's five or 10, but 30? I mean, we shouldn't just say, oh, well, that's that's being a woman. Got to accept it. Right. No one wants to be told that, um, right. you know, and it's, it's crazy how long it goes. I mean, you know, we, as a species, right. Used to be having babies in our teens and early twenties with that shorter life expectancy. Now it can be late thirties, forties. I mean, my oldest patient was 46. So, um, and it was a surprise. Like she thought she was just not fertile anymore. And then surprise there's a baby, you know, like (laughs) she's like, Oh, uh, okay. Guess I can still make babies, which was great. She had always wanted one. So, um, yeah, it was awesome. But like, you know, so if you're just having a baby at, you know, 
40, let's say, right, you've still got like this longer time period to go. And I wonder if, you know, a lot of moms kind of, you know, that are older chalk it, chalk it up to their age, right? Like they're told in pregnancy, it's a geriatric pregnancy, which is like yeah. the wrong word to use. The worst word. <laughs> So now they're just thinking, well, I'm, I've had a baby, I'm too old. I don't have the same energy anymore. And, you know, maybe that's not actually what's going on. Right. I mean, we, we know that babies are exhausting, um, but a lot of it is hormonal. I mean, I was kind of middle of the road. I was not quite geriatric. I was 34 when I had my son and, um, and he's nine, but the, I had no energy. I had no libido. I had brain fog and I was really suffering from postpartum depression too. And it turned out to just all be horn, not just, but it was hormonal. Mm -hmm. And yes, everyone kept saying, but you're a single mom and you work. And so you're tired. And I'm like, I've worked hard my whole life. This is different. And so recognizing that hormones actually play such a role on our mood our energy, all of it is, I hope eventually it gets more recognized. Mm, Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. You know, just the dismissing of, you know, oh, it must just be, you know, your life and the way that things are. Exactly. Um, and, and yeah, with hormones too, you know, I think there's like that excuse for like a lowered sex drive of, oh, well, you're just busy or, you know, the baby you're, you're touched out or whatever. And, you know, I'm sure that obviously plays a role. Um, but you know, I think from everything that you're saying, you know, it's affecting, you know, those tissues in the pelvic region, but so many other things, um, you know, are there, I guess for, for moms who are listening to this, you know, and just kind of wondering, like, Hmm, maybe I should get my pelvic floor checked out. Like, what are some of those, I don't know, red flags, even yellow flags that, you know, would really, I mean, in your ideal world, I'm sure you just would love everybody to go get checked out, right? Um, which would be amazing, right? But for those who are like, uh, yeah, I wonder if this is related, like, what would be just some of those things that someone could kind of self assess and check in and go, I should really see somebody? Oh, that's uh, besides of- the obvious, we know yeah, if you're leaking pee for sure. <laughs> yeah, obviously if you're leaking, I think that I think mainly is they think I'm dry it's because I'm older. And that's something that is not true or that um I just can't accommodate that position anymore or um I don't that's that's actually a hard question for me. Um I'm trying to think what I don't even know. We'll cut this part out of the podcast because <laughs> I mean, besides the obvious, like nobody's really looking at themselves and maybe they should be looking to see like what changes are occurring down there. Um, take a mirror and look. <laughs> That's what I would recommend. And if you're noticing paleness, if you're noticing redness or irritation and it uh, comes along with pain with sex or any pain at all. Maybe it's pain when you're peeing or discomfort or stinging. Anything just doesn't feel normal in that area really is an indication to come to a pelvic floor therapist. Oh, I like that. I think what I'm hearing you say too is take a look now, like go pause this episode, go in your bathroom, (laughs) get a mirror. (laughs) Let's, let's establish a baseline. 
And then yeah. you'll know, right? It's like doing self-exams of your breasts. You know, you got to know what the normal is to find out if there's a lump there. Um, right. And I would, I, that's one of the things I always recommend during, like, if I do like prenatal consultations for breastfeeding is, you know, the breast tissues are obviously are started to change by virtue of pregnancy, but feel it. And, and on a weekly basis, just feel how, you know, those milk sacs are expanding and growing and, you know, the amount of pressure that feels comfortable for you and get familiar with that. Cause they're going to change super rapidly within those first three days after you give birth. And if you haven't gotten somewhat familiar with it, you could freak out and panic that something is wrong. Um, you could go, Oh my gosh, my, there's lumps everywhere. I must have clogged ducts. Like, well, maybe you don't, you know? So if you don't know kind of a baseline of what's normal for you, it can be really hard to tell like you said, um, you know, how do we even know? Most people aren't really examining. Right. I mean, we don't, even at, at a young age, we don't really look at ourselves. We always give our patients a mirror on the first day and they watch in the mirror as we're going through and assessing all the different external structures. And so many of them have said, oh my gosh, I have to look. I've never looked before. <laughs> But you can't know if something's wrong or abnormal if you don't know what your normal is. And there's color changes, there's structural changes that can occur as we age, after we have a baby, and some are normal and some are not. Um, so if there's any question about it, then I would definitely come see a pelvic floor therapist for that too. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I, I think, gosh, you know, this is just so much wonderful information and, you know, so applicable to anybody who's had a baby. And, you know, um, I think it's one of those things that, you know, is, is becoming like a big concern. Um, mm-hmm. one other question I had for you is about pelvic pain. Cause you had yeah. mentioned that, um, I've, just by virtue of me having some issues in my lumbar spine, um, I've seen it discussed frequently that like, well, is it actually your low back? Is it pelvic pain? Is it your SI joint? Is it because this pain can be sort of referred or or non-specific sometimes? Um, so I don't know. I'm sure it varies, obviously, from person to person. But is there like a general sort of descriptor you could give of pelvic pain? Like, does it feel like a muscle? Could it feel like something else? Um, Because I think people sometimes just go, oh, I have pain, but I'm not really sure where it's coming from. Yeah. Maybe it's obvious with pelvic stuff. I don't know. No, no, it's not always obvious. Usually someone who I would see for pelvic pain could have very specific pain where they might refer to it as their ovaries, their ovaries hurt because it's in that general area. Um, Oftentimes patients will go to the ER and think they have appendicitis when it's actually pelvic floor because it can refer up that high on the right side. Um, Well, on either side, it can refer up that high, but it'll often mimics um, appendicitis. Uh, Also, a lot of people will complain that they feel like they're having menstrual cramps but they're not on their period. Uh, And then a lot of people who have endometriosis or adenomyosis or some sort of condition like that will have a lot of pain because those conditions are painful, but don't know that the pelvic floor could be part of their pain. And so we can actually help manage their pain by treating the component of it that's coming from the pelvic floor. 
Um, and then yes, the pelvic floor muscles can definitely refer to the back or the tailbone. Um, it's common. That's not typically what I'm seeing. I'm seeing more of like the, the front menstrual type ovary type, you know, pain. Um, but there's definitely tailbone pain though. We, we know the pelvic floor has a huge role in the tailbone, um, because those muscles actually attach there. Um, if it starts to get a little bit higher, it, it can be referred pain to the lumbar or sacral area, but then also is accompanied by maybe having also a sacral or lumbar dysfunction with it. And then we discern that we discern like, oh, is this actually coming from the back or is it referring to the back? And that's something that we can diagnose. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I just learned a lot because (laughs) that's the whole point of this, right? (laughs) Exactly. And I'm hoping all of our listeners have too. And um, gosh, you know, you're just an excellent wealth of, of information and such an incredible, you know, asset and resource for our community. Um, you know, I know so many people listening are not local. So um, I'm wondering if there's like if somebody is looking for someone like yourself um, elsewhere in in the country, is there like um, are there any organizations or directories or, um, you know, specific things they should ask their their doctor or how, how would they go about finding a pelvic floor specialist? Yeah, I always recommend pelvicrehab.com. It's uh, put on through Herman and Wallace, which is the pelvic institute that trains us, the main institute that trains us to do what we do. And they have a directory. You just type in your zip code and it'll pull up those who are trained and usually certified in pelvic floor. And that's a good place to start. Um, I actually have a website where they can email me and then I can direct them if they're not in my area. And my website is designed for patients. So it's all about patient education. Um, A lot of what we talked about today is on there and how to like walk yourself through it. And so that's pelvicfloorspecialist.com. And they can email me directly from the website and I can send them in a direction if I can help as well. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check out Tara's website. They're is a lot of great information on there that's just, you know, really nicely broken out um, sort of by topic and and everything. So yes, it's a good written summary of everything that you shared. (laughs) Yes, there's so much more. This is just the tip of the iceberg. It really is. But I hope that, you know, by you sharing this information that some people out there will recognize that they may have something going on and will be able to get the right help with it. So thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you're doing for all the women out there. Thanks. Yeah. I, you know, I feel like when it comes to breastfeeding, it's so much more than boobs and babies and (laughs) you've got other things going on in our lives. You know, if you're breastfeeding, you've clearly had a baby. So let's talk about all of those related things. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you again. And I'll see everyone else on the next episode. most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. 
In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras, and you can get started right now.